Welcome to the weekly podcast from Harvest Ridge Church in North Ridgeville, Ohio. Our heart's desire is that you would grow in your love and devotion to Jesus Christ and that these messages will strengthen your daily walk. For more information about our church, visit us on the web at www.harvestridge.net. Did you know that dogs can't operate an MRI machine? But cats can. I love that. So you ever walked into a room and there's a group of people, they already know each other. And when you walk in, you walk into this preformed group and they have inside stories and inside language and inside jokes. Anybody ever experienced that other than me? You know, they're talking about and you should have seen Bobby, ha, 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 when he fell down the stairs, ha, ha, ha. And I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Everybody's laughing except me because I wasn't there when Bobby fell down the stairs. To me, that sounds perfectly painful and dreadful, right? So inside stories happen. There are close friends that have inside jokes. And some of you are in groups like that. And when somebody new walks up, you don't pay any attention to them. You still continue talking in your inside story. And that's not really kind and loving. It's really nice to include new people, not ostracize them by continuing your own little we're special, you're not. The church should never be a we're special, you're not kind of club. But that's a different sermon for a different day. Who do you talk to off the record? Do you have somebody that you talk to off the record? You talk to them differently than you talk to everybody else? I was on a board one time, and they told me on this board I was on that when dealing with personal sensitive issues, never, ever put it in an email because if they got sued, there would be a subpoena, and they would go through our email records, and there would be a trail, and we found out that emails can be very damaging to people, and people can even get fired for emails sent a long time ago, Right? So apparently, emails are not a way to talk sensitive. Sometimes when you do, it costs you. To them, things that you would never say publicly or to strangers, you can say to maybe somebody that you have a private relationship, maybe something you never put in a, an email you could say to somebody. I, you know, I call Bob Stetz every once in a while, and when we're talking, we say some things that I wouldn't want anybody to hear because you don't have the context for it. You understand what I'm talking about? Now, Hilma and I, we have a lot of context for those conversations. Is it right to speak publicly with a little more thought, maybe a little more guarded approach than you would with, say, a trusted friend or family member? Is it appropriate to have different levels of your conversations, what I'm asking? Oh, we would all agree that it is. You don't stand up and say things publicly sometimes that you would say to your spouse. You may reveal opinions to a, a family member. You would never reveal anywhere else. Or you may say it in a way that other people wouldn't understand because they don't have the background of communication. Reminds me of a, a conversation me and my son had. Uh, Pastor Matt was coming home from college and I had flown down to Dallas to help him load up and load up his truck and we were driving back across Oklahoma, north side of Dallas, Oklahoma. It was uh, May or June, something like that. It was hot. So he didn't have air conditioning in his truck, so the windows were rolled down in his truck. And, and of course, he was sharing with me a new uh, album of his favorite screamo band. And we were cranking really loud, driving down the road with a little screamo going on, bopping our heads. And we were guys, I think we drove an hour and a half and didn't say a word to each other. We'd just look over and go, 
Or, you know, there's a difference in guys' communication between and. There's a difference. It says two different things. You know, guys don't have to talk. We, that's how I know there was no woman on the trip. We went an hour and a half, didn't say a word. <laughs> You're sexist. No, I'm not. I live with women. <laughs> that's, that's actually what we're going to talk about a little bit today is me saying something like that and how that lands. Never mind that it's factual that women use twice the amount of words per day as the average man. And a guy can ride in the car with his best friend for an hour and not say a word and not once think they're mad at each other. <laughs> How is that possible? Me and Matt, we're driving along and after a couple hours of rock and roll and the wind blowing us and, you know, we're whatever. You hungry? Yeah. Okay. So we stop and get something to eat. We get back in the car and our ears are still ringing. We're eating so the volume's down a little lower and he starts talking. And for the next couple hours, driving across Oklahoma, me and my son had one of the most memorable conversations of our life. We talked about his past. We talked about his future. We talked about his loves, his sports. We talked about him wanting to become an RA, what it looked like for him to be in ministry. We talked about love. We talked about potential of marriage. We talked about all kinds of things for the next couple hours. And you know... In that conversation, we were talking in a way that maybe you wouldn't understand if you were here. We're the same people, but there was a freedom in our relationship and in our language of how we would talk about stuff. There's a freedom that you don't have when you're doing things for public consumption. Can you all acknowledge that this happens? With that being said, I want to talk to you about First Timothy today. Because 1 Timothy is not a letter that was written for public consumption. It is a letter from Paul to his son in the faith. It is, if you will, him not being able to get in a car and drive with Timothy because Timothy is so far away, but him writing in a letter some thoughts, some thoughts and some ideas, some approaches that were very personal to the person he wrote them to, if you will, we get a chance to read his private conversation. With that being said, I'd like you to stand to your feet in honor of God's word. We're in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command, key word for the book of 1 Timothy is this word right here, command. Uh, the word commands found numerous times in the book. Seven times Paul issues direct commands to Timothy using the word command. And there's another half dozen times that Paul issues direct commands using imperative verbs like instruct them, tell them, don't let them. So Paul is using this word. Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God. So God told me what to do. Now I'm going to tell you what to do. By the God our Savior and the Christ Jesus our hope to Timothy, my true what? Son. What kind, what, what's he calling him? Son. Son. What's the relationship here? Is it one of intimacy or not of intimacy? intimacy. A lot of intimacy in this. He's calling him a son in the faith. And then he said, um, grace and mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, stay there in where? 
Key here. Where's he supposed to be at? Where's he at? Timothy is in Ephesus. And he said, so that you may do what? Come on, here's our word again. So you what? Command. Are y'all starting to pick something up here, all right? What's the tone of this letter? There's a very clear direction. I'm talking to my son. I'm telling him what he's got to do. Any, any, have you ever talked? To, all right, anyway. So that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer, devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies in the book of Revelation that says that, uh, anyway, sorry. I just added that last part there. That's what we talked about last week, right? Yeah, don't, don't go on and on about this myths and endless genealogies and predictions of the future and all that stuff. Because they promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. God's work, another key word in the, in the book is work or energy or deeds or actions. Very action-driven, this book. So, um, the, goal, the goal of our command, the goal of this command is what? Love. Love. If some of you, you don't hear a single word I've say other than this today. The goal of your command from God is not to be good. Because you can't be good anyway. The goal of this command is not to get rich or to be awesome. The goal of this command is to do what? Love. love to show your love to this world. You want to know what God asks of you and requires of you. There it is. The goal of your life and this command we're a part of is love. And it comes from a pure heart, good conscience, and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have wondered or turned aside to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of law. <laughs> this line. But they don't even know what they're talking about. <laughs> or what they so confidently affirm. Wow. We'll come back and cover that in a second. Lord, I pray that today you would add your blessing to the hearing of your word. Uh, help me to communicate it appropriately as you would. And I pray that our hearts, we, we would join in this father-son talk. This father and son talk and we would learn the lessons from this father-son talk. And these commands would be commands that we would be open to so that you could speak your father-son, father-daughter talk to us. In the name of Jesus, we pray it. Amen. Before you're seated, turn and smile at somebody real big and tell them it's really nice to see you. You look awesome. It's good to see you if you're joining us online. God bless you. So there are three insights we can draw from a proper reading of First and Second Timothy. Paul is writing letters not for public consumption, but for his private relationship with his son. That being said, there are three things we can draw, and we're going to look at these three insights today from from First and Second Timothy, specifically First Timothy mostly. And first of all, is that Timothy was young and timid. Now, Paul had sent Timothy to Ephesus. Actually, when he was passing through, he just left him there. And Timothy stayed in Ephesus because Paul saw there were some issues with the church, and he needed somebody there in Ephesus to straighten it out. So Timothy probably arrived there about 60 A.D., and maybe 61 A.D., and Paul kept going, and he wrote him a letter back in probably 62-ish A.D., and then he wrote another letter, a second Timothy, in 63 A.D., and then Paul died 
and probably 64 AD at the hands of Nero who cut off his head for the witness of Christ. Now the, all of that to say, those are, I'm guessing about these dates, but we know they're in a three or four time year period either way. And we know that Paul died and before he died he wrote 1 Timothy to Timothy who was left in Ephesus and then later he wrote 2 Timothy to Timothy from prison right before his death and we know that he died around AD 64-65 under Nero's hand. All of this was before John, the apostle John, showed up in Ephesus and became the elder at Ephesus which was after 70 AD, after the destruction of the temple back in Jerusalem. John went to Ephesus and was the elder there, the presbyteros there, for the next 20 years or so before he eventually died, as, uh, as church fathers say, from natural causes. So John straightened out what Timothy started working on. But it was a long time before John got it all straightened out too. It was from there that, that they say that John probably wrote the book, Gospel of John and 1st, 2nd, 3rd John was from Ephesus. And Timothy, though, was an early part. We, we know some things about Ephesus from Paul's book to Ephesus from the injunctions given against it by John the Revelator in the book of, of Revelation, uh, the letter to Ephesus, and also from Paul's statements about it, um, and also from what is written in the book of Acts. We know that there were several issues going on at Ephesus. And those Ephesus were they had racism, they had racism in the church. There was one group of people that considered themselves racially superior to another group and were mistreating them. We also know in that church there was Gnosticism, which is this thought that the body and the flesh are divided, so therefore I can do anything I want to with my body and it doesn't affect my spirit, which is Gnosticism and a lie. We also know that Judaism was being pushed and that Judaism is that you have to obey, they were pushing you have to obey all the rules and regulations of the Old Testament. And then we know that there was a true uh, seed of, of a righteous church established by faith in Jesus Christ there. So there are all of these tensions in this church. Wow, that's sort of like this church. There are all these tensions in our church. We're being affected by our culture. We're being affected by our upbringing. In the world we grew up in, we're being affected by our religious views of God from our childhood telling us things about God and the Bible that weren't even true. We're being affected by all of these things and, and pastoring a group of people that have all these myriad of views and trying to keep us all together in unity and working for the same cause together. The goal of this command is love. Man, that's a tough job. Can you imagine if you were Timothy? Timothy, though, was young. We know from 1 Timothy 4.12, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. We know he was young. Paul said, yeah, you're young. You're probably in your early 20s, Timothy. And I left you to pull together a group of people that are fighting over everything. And Timothy... I know they're going to not believe you and not trust you because you're young, but I tell you what you should do. You should set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Now, I know a little bit of how this feels. I was, um, I was 25 years old when we moved here to North Ridgeville. 25. I was, um, I was too young to plan a church, according to the Ohio Ministry Network, but they did it anyway. They let me come here. After they sent somebody else, but that's a different story. 
So I was young. I was 25. And we showed up uh, February 29th, 1992. I'd been to North Ridgeville 30 minutes before I moved here. For those of you that don't know, back in the day, you didn't go online to find an apartment. The only way we found an apartment was I lived in a different community. I'd only driven through this community once. I knew nothing that was here. So I called the Chamber of Commerce and I asked them for a list of apartments. And then we called the apartments to see if any were open for us to move in three weeks. 25-year-old loads up his family. Well, his family then was wife and me. We put everything we had in the U-Haul and she drove behind me in my pickup truck and we got up here. We arrived up here and unloaded. Within a couple of weeks, we had assembled 12 people to be our core group, including us. Two teenagers. Three teenagers. A kid and two teenagers. So there were 12 of us total. We were core groups. You know what we did? We started a church. <laughs> 12 of us. After knowing each other a month and a half, we started a church, so we started meeting. And then me and a guy named John Millsaps, those of you might remember him. Remember John, he's a big guy, you know, big guy, older. He was in his 50s when we started, had a bald head, big guy, big voice, all that kind of stuff. And we would go door to door in this community. And I knocked, me and him and I, we knocked on hundreds of doors in this community and just introduced ourselves and, and uh, hi, we're from Harvest Ridge. And every single person those first several years, every single person when we walked up to the door spoke to him instead of me. They thought he was the pastor because I was the kid, 25 years old, planting a church, walking around, knocking on the doors, and nobody's giving me any respect because everybody's thinking he has respect because he's, he's older. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah? Do you know how you get respect? You earn it. The way you talk the way you act, the way you love people, the way you have faith in God, and the way you act with responsibility and morality and purity. Guys, listen to me. If you're younger in this room and nobody gives me respect, nobody treats me right, earn it. Earn it. Earn it. Don't ask for it. Earn it. If you want something in life, work to get it. God gave you what you need. Come on, young man. Come on, young lady. Act like a young man, not a punk kid. And you will get respect, right? Teenager? Young adult? 55-year-old still acting like a child? Earn it. Timothy was young. He didn't get a lot of respect. Second thing we know about him is he had a lack of male influence in his life. As a matter of fact, there's no male attached with him any description in the New Testament outside the Apostle Paul. Second uh, Timothy 1.5, I'm reminded of your sincere faith which first lived in your grandmother, Lois, and in your mother, Eunice, and I'm persuaded now lives in you also. There's no mention anywhere of a father. We do know that his dad was Greek, is all we know about him. And Paul circumcised him when he led him to Christ. And Paul took him on missionary journeys with him because Paul was the male authority figure in his life. But this young man grew up probably third, first 12, 13, 14, 15 years of his life with no male authority 
model in his life that we know of. That's damaging. Guys, do you know, do you know young men need a male authority figure in their life? Do you know young ladies need a male authority figure in their life? Men, never underestimate the power of your... Never underestimate the power of your presence. Never underestimate the power of your words of affirmation. Never underestimate it. Timothy obviously didn't have much of a relationship with his father. Why else would his mom give him to the traveling preacher at age 14? Third thing we know about Timothy is apparently, well, we, we, hold on, wait, wait. We do notice who his role models are. Who are the people that influence him the great list? His mother and grandmother. This boy was raised by ladies. I'm not saying, anyway, I'm not saying anything here except pointing out facts and simply saying this, guys, you are needed. And even, listen to me, even if you need to be a father figure to a kid not in your household, that's okay too. My dad was a father figure to a lot of kids that weren't his kids. The third thing we know about Timothy is he was timid. There are several allusions in the letter. I'll just give you the, the most quoted one. It's in 2 Timothy um, chapter 1, verse 7. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid. He's calling out the fact that Timothy is timid. Timothy hasn't been around men a lot. Timothy has been raised by ladies. Timothy is a little timid. Timothy is young. Timothy is a quiet personality. We know that about him. There are several other things we can make out of his personality from the things we read in these letters. And, and he reminds me of a kid, a kid that I had on my football team. I'm just going to call him Jay. The first time Jay came to practice, the very first day, it came time to hit. Jay did this to the hit. He turned his back to the hit. Now, if you know anything about football, if you turn your back to the hit, you're going to get what? You're going to get hurt. You never turn away from a hit. You always embrace it face up, head on. Maybe there's something to learn from football about life. Anyway, this kid, every time, every time there was a, a, a play and, and he was going to hit, he would do this. You know, he's right-handed, so he'd drop his right shoulder, and he, would, he was getting hurt. And so um, I was leading early, early in the season. We had just got pads on. He wasn't really squaring up to the hits and everything. But he said, told me he, was, he had a big personality, a strong guy, wanted to be a linebacker. So I, smart kid, smart kid, um, wanted to work. You could see him trying. So I said, all right, I'm going to do this. I'm going to play middle linebacker with you. That's what I, I love playing middle linebacker. That was always my favorite. So I grabbed him. Coach Anderson was running the offense and they were running the plays. And I put Jay here in middle linebacker. And I grabbed his shoulder pads and I said, I'm going to yell things at you. You just keep your feet wide and your balance. And I'm going to help you learn to play middle linebacker. So I grabbed his shoulder pads and I would yell, look at the guard, look at the guard. And we'd go over this way because you could tell the way the guard was moving. And, or, or look at the running back, he's leaning, he's leaning. Or I would say things like, 
Look at the formation. You've seen that formation before. And, and we would do stuff. And then when the play would happen, I would grab his shoulder pads and I would move him into the hole where the play was happening. And the running back would be coming through and I'd take his shoulders and I would slam him right into the play and make him embrace the hit full face because I slammed him into it, you know? Bigger guy, eighth, year, eighth grade boy, you know? I'm Some of you are saying, you're so cruel. <laughs> okay, I'm cruel. You know what happened, though? A couple weeks later, I, he'd say, look at the guard. A couple weeks later, I'd feel him shift when I, he recognized the play. A couple weeks later, I wasn't having to push him into the hole anymore. By the end of the season, the kid was beating me in his reads to the hole. And when he went to the next level, he started from day one. Because somebody grabbed him and shoved him into it and said, deal with it. Yeah. You got it? Yeah. What's Paul doing with this letter? What's Paul doing with this letter? He's grabbing Timothy by the nap of the neck, or by the shoulder pads, if you will, and saying, you got to deal with this. Woom. All right. Second thing we know is the Ephesian church needed some help. I curse you clock in the name of Jesus. <laughs> I will not apologize for finishing this message today, period. All right? The Ephesian church needed some help. I've got, I've got a little quote I wrote here, and this quote is, will be understood when we work through the passage. And the quote is this, the most ignorant person is the one that doesn't know that they don't know. The most ignorant person is not the one that doesn't know. No, that person's all right. It's the one that doesn't know they don't know. The most ignorant person is the one that confidently affirms what they don't know. I was watching some kid on TikTok telling me about American history and why we need to do this. And the problem was this kid was really far left leaning and I was watching him. And I, I mean, I'm not talking left. I'm talking down the street and around the corner left. And he was quoting American history. The problem was not one, re not one reference to American history was correct. This 14-year-old boy on TikTok influencing thousands and he was completely ignorant to the fact that he didn't get a single fact of his history correct. So how can I believe anything he has to say as a takeaway from facts that aren't even true? All right? It's like reading some of your far-right stuff you guys post on Facebook. Problem is, you don't know well, you don't know, right? I don't know what I don't know, but for me to tell you I know what I don't know makes me ignorant. And Timothy's dealing with a bunch of people that are spouting what they don't know as if they know it. <laughs> I made some of you mad when I said your far-right stuff on Facebook. Listen, I don't care. Get mad. The fact of the matter is, just because somebody says it in social media doesn't mean it's true. Abraham Lincoln said that on the internet. <laughs> All right, stop this. So he gives him three commands. He tells him what to do to this Ephesian church that needed help. First thing is, stop the stupid talk. Just listen to these. I'm going to read a bunch of verses. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. Command certain people 
not to teach false doctrines any longer or devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 through 3, the Spirit clearly says that in latter times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits. There are deceiving spirits, did you know? And things taught by demons. Such teachings. The goal of this command is love. How can you tell whether or not it's a demonic spirit behind it? Does it promote love? What you're going to put on Facebook, Instagram, or whatever. Does it promote love or does it promote an argument? Sometimes love calls things out, but it always does it in a loving way. Not an argumentative way. Because arguments only make people argue. <laughs> and every time I've won an argument with my wife, I've lost it. <laughs> that is true. Don't win an argument. Win a heart. All right? Such things come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods. And Paul is ticked off. He goes on in verse 7. He says, Have nothing to do with these godless myths and their old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. Chapter 5, verse 13. They get into the habit of being idle and go about from house to house. Not only do they become idlers, but also busybodies who talk nonsense and say things they ought not to. 1 Timothy 6, 3. Anyone who teaches otherwise and does not agree with the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and they understand nothing. Paul is ticked, can you tell? They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction, which I hate friction, between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a way for them to get rich. Like, anyway, I didn't say Kenneth Copeland, Kenneth Hagin there, did I? I... First Timothy 6.20. Some of you don't know who they are. Thank God you don't. First Timothy 6.20. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge. Do you all notice what Paul is saying here? Stop the stupid talk. All this, people don't even know what they're talking about, and they're saying stuff that brings division. You've got to stop the stupid talk. Stop the gossip. Stop the conjecture. Stop the, I'm right, you're right. Stop it. And by the way, most of these injunctions are issued against men, not women. Just hang on to that truth, all right? All right, second thing he's supposed to do is he's supposed to appoint godly leaders. I won't take a lot of time here. He says to overseers, though, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble attack. Now, the overseer must be above reproach. Notice the above reproach. So he's beginning to, he gives a whole chapter where he's talking about leaders in the church and how Timothy is supposed to select these leaders. And he says, appoint overseers. And then he's talking about deacons. He says, in the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect. Notice the same way, in the same way, in the same way. I don't, I don't have time to go into that right now. Maybe we will in a couple seconds. All right. Third thing he says is show honor and respect. But this honor and respect is not to be, it's not to be based upon their view of themselves or their words, but upon their actions, their deeds. 
1 Timothy 3.13, those who have served well gain an excellent standing and assurance, great assurance in the faith. Notice those who have done what? Served, served well. Served well. Their, the respect is based on their behaviors, not upon their talk. Not upon their talents, but upon their behaviors, their actions. 1 Timothy 5, 1 through 3, do not rebuke an older man harshly, exhort him as if he were your father, treat a younger man as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters with absolute purity. So show respect to all these different ages. And then he said, give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. How do we know what a good widow is? He defines the one who washes the disciples' feet, the one who takes care of the problems and the needs. So how do we give proper respect? When somebody earns it, we give it to them. And how do you earn it? By your actions and your behaviors. Then slaves and masters. 1 Timothy 6, 1 through 2. All who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect so that God's name when our teaching will not be slandered. Those who are believing masters should not, uh, should not show them disrespect just because they are fellow believers. Instead, they should do what? Serve them even better. Serve them even better. How do you know you're showing respect? Because you serve, you work, you give, your actions show respect. Because their masters are dear to them as fellow believers and are devoted to the welfare of their slaves. So the masters are showing respect for their slaves by taking care of their needs of their slaves. Are y'all following me what I'm saying here? You might be. Carol Dweck did a study on how to, um, how to help students be better students. What kind of words make them better students? So what they did is they gave them an IQ test. And this IQ test, they, no matter how they scored, they broke them up into two categories randomly across the board. One category, when the student took the IQ test, they said, you're so smart. You're so talented and so smart. You did so well because you were smart. To a second group, they said, you worked so hard, you studied so hard, and you did such a good job, you put a lot of effort into it. And then as they gave them several other tests, they continued to tell this group, you're so smart, and they continued to tell this group, you're so, so uh, good at working, you, you're really trying, you're giving it the extra effort. And then after a time, they gave them the same IQ test again, and this group did 20% worse, and this group did 30% better. Because those who thought themselves to be smart... If they couldn't perform up to their talents, they quit. But those who could give effort could give effort regardless of their talents. God does not praise you because you're so awesome. He praises you because you have devoted yourself to follow him. If you want to raise your kids a little better, start praising the good things they do instead of telling them how awesome they are. Participation trophies do not grow character. Effort grows character. Did he say that? Yes, I did. What I want from you is to realize that Paul is telling Timothy, because Paul understood something all the way back 2,000 years ago, that people will rise to the challenge if you tell them that they can. 
God's got more for you to do with your life than you think. And don't tell me, don't sit here and tell me, I'm doing the best I can. There's actually a song. Me and my wife and daughter were in the car the other day and we're singing the words of the song. We get to that line, but I'm doing, and, and the words are supposed to be, but I'm doing the best I can. Instead I sing, but I'm doing somewhat good. <laughs> you know why? Because no matter how good I do, I know I can always do better. Do not undercut your ability to achieve more, to be more, to become a better person, to make a greater impact. God wants you to do better because he's already given you everything you need to be better. Thirdly of all, Paul is pushing Timothy to get control. Now, I was listening to a podcast the other day. It was on personalities, and it, uh, it was talking about our motivational personalities. And uh, those of you that have ever taken, anybody ever taken a DISC personality test? There's four predominant personalities. D, the driver. I, the party guy. S, the stable. C, the competent, the one that gets everything done. Around here, we take these tests, and if you go through Volunteer Lab, we'll give you a measure of the test that'll help you determine which one you are, except we don't use those letters. We use colors. Well, the podcast I was listening to was talking about those colors. Red being the driver, got to get it done, got to get it done, got to get it done, driver. The I is the party person, the one that's always, I mean, you walk in the room and they're glad to see you and you're glad to see them and they celebrate everything and they have a big personality and they're fun to be around and they gather their energy from other people. And then there's the S, they're the green, so the, the red, the D is the red, the I is the, the uh, yellow, the, the green is the S and they're stable, they're the people... They're incredibly bright, intelligent, awesome folks, but they're stable. They're, they're introverts. They don't like out there being among everybody. They, they, you give them a job, they'll get it done. They're awesome, wonderful people. They're stable, stable. The world is built on the backs of the stables, you know? The guy that in first service I was talking to showed up on Wednesday to mow the grass because he knew it was going to rain on Thursday and he wanted to get it right before Sunday and he showed up because he's a stable you know and then there's the the C's if they were to mow the grass they would have to have all their lines perfectly straight they would actually make sure the blades on the lawnmower were sharpened before they begin and would check the oil every time they run the lawnmower you know what I'm talking about any C's in the house you measure twice cut Measure four times, cut once. Measure four times, dump it in the bowl once. Any C's? You know what? They're the blues. They're the competence. Every detail's got to be right. So we can ascertain. So anyway, the story I was listening to was talking about a, a lady whose best friend was a, a green, a, a stable person. She was a red. She's a dominant, got to go get it done type person. And the speaker was saying, uh, you know, red sometimes bully greens. Well, these two are best friends sitting next to each other. They've been through a lot of life. So the red lady, best friend, leans over to her best friend and says, I don't bully you, do I? And she said, well, yes, sometimes. <laughs> you bully me because you want me to move. You want me to get something done. And I, I'm just not ready to move yet. And you're always pushing, pushing, pushing. When I heard that, I thought of this right here. Well, that'd be good for your marriage to know. If you're a red and you're married to a green, you're going to have some tension in your household. This letter, Paul is a red. I'm a red. I'm a D. I'm a, 
Let's get it done. Let's go. Let's go. I'll sh grab your shoulder pads and shove you in the hole. <laughs> right? Make you hit somebody whether you want to or not. Right? I'm a D. If you're a green and you're just like, I don't like to be pushed around, that's Timothy. A little timid. He's a green. And Paul is bullying him in this letter. Maybe not bullying as in abusing, but bullying as saying, come on, boy, let's get it together. Let's... I'm going to make you face what you don't want to face, which is why God gave us D's. Reds like me. Right? That's why God gave us to you. <laughs> is to tell you you need to deal with it whether you want to or not. And that's what Paul's doing. Now, I painted a picture of this whole letter. Now we're going to approach what is probably the most disturbing and most difficult passage in the New Testament. There is another passage like this. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 42 through 44. And um, there's a portion of that passage. Actually, there's a big book by Gordon Fee. It's about this big on 1 Corinthians. And I'm just going to handle this real quick. Uh, the, the words that are so egregious in 1 Corinthians 14, 42, according to Gordon Fee, from his historical uh, background, his understanding and analyzation of the text, from analyzation of ancient documents, analyzation of the documents within the documents, he concludes that 1 Corinthians 14, 44 should not be in the original text, which means that if it should not be in the original text, there's only one passage in the entire New Testament that says the kind of thing we're going to read today. One. And if you ever debate with an unsaved person or one of these atheist agnostics out there, this is what they're going to do. They're going to tell you God is a misogynistic hater of women based upon this passage. So let's read it. 1 Corinthians 2.9 I want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds. Hold on. Good deeds? Isn't that the exact same thing he's been saying the entire letter about everybody? Hold on. Answer me. Isn't that the exact same words he's been using about everybody, male and female, the entire letter? Okay. Hmm. Appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not, quietness is the same word we're going to look down at the end of verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was a woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But the women will be saved if they bear children. They continue in faith, love, holiness, and propriety. This passage has been read for years telling women that what you need to do is shut up and bear kids. It's all you're good for. The problem is, is we fail to read the context of everything I've tried to establish for the last 30 minutes. For the last 30 minutes, I've painted a picture of who Timothy was. I've painted a picture of what the problem was. I've painted a picture of the entire book telling us how to deal with the problem. Are y'all getting what I'm saying? Now let's look at this passage within the whole. We want to look in the, by the way, the word quiet. I did some Greek research on the word quiet. And the word quiet there, women have to be quiet, does not mean you're not allowed to talk. The word actually is, in the Greek, it, it, references, it references having a peace about you 
that you don't have to go off because there's a peacefulness in your being. And by the way, if you think he's only telling women to be quiet, you need to look back at 1 Timothy 2.2 where he says men need to be quiet as well. But those who want to pull these verses out of context want to pull it out of the entirety of the book of 1 Timothy and they want to make statements from these verses saying women aren't allowed to have authority and they have to shut up and they have to bear kids and be quiet. And if you... If that's how you read this, I want you to understand you're misreading what Paul says based upon the entirety of the book because he's telling men to shut up too. Didn't we read a bunch of that? So let's look, and I want to ask a question. If Paul really feels this way, if Jesus feels this way, if this is the attitude of the rest of the New Testament, we're going to do this really quick. What did Jesus do regarding women? Well, first of all, the very first person to call Jesus Messiah, well, the first person Jesus said I'm Messiah to was the woman at the well. It's in John chapter 4, verse 25. The first woman who called Jesus the Messiah, first person that called Jesus the Messiah in the New Testament is a woman. So the first person Jesus called himself Messiah to and the first person they called him Messiah were both women. And when he had the opportunity to let anybody find the empty tomb and give the message of the resurrection, he gave it to Mary Magdalene and other ladies. I could give you a dozen other instances, but I want to ask you a very simple question. Did Jesus ever belittle, ostracize, or push to the fringes women? No. As a matter of fact, he included them and gave them positions of respect and authority with the way he talked to them and dealt with them, correct? All right, let's look at the rest of the New Testament. What does the Bible say? The early church, how did they treat women? Well, first of all, Acts 21, 9. He, Philip, had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. 1 Corinthians 11, 5. Every woman who prays or prophesies. So women in the, and by the way, the 1 Corinthians 11 passage is dealing with how women are to prophesy in church. That's the whole content. So apparently, the Apostle Paul didn't think women needed to keep silent in the church because he tells us how to do praying and prophesying appropriately in church. And Philip had four daughters who were prophets. So apparently, the office of prophet was held by women in the church, early church. Second thing, let's look at this one. Deacon, uh, Romans 16.1. By the way, who wrote Romans 16? Paul. Paul wrote Romans 16. I commend you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church. So we know that the office of deacon was held by women as well. How about this one? Uh, Romans 16.7. Greet Andronicus and Junia. Junia is a female. She is a female. It's a female name. Uh, my fellow Jews have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the what? So now we have a woman called an apostle. We have them called prophets. We've got them called deacons. We've got them called apostles. I wonder if a woman, speaking of the fivefold ministry gift, I wonder if a woman ever taught. Huh. Acts 18.26, when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. So what did Priscilla, who was obviously the leader of, the leader name order does matter. When they first met, it was Aquila and Priscilla. But after Paul got to know them and elevated Priscilla in her leadership, Paul begins to change the name, calling them Priscilla and Aquila, because she was the leader of, of the ministry, if not the household, she was the leader of the ministry. Priscilla 
was a teacher. Another thing we know, pastors, Romans 16.3, greet Priscilla and Aquila, meet, greet also the church that meets in their house. Here again, Priscilla is in the position of leadership. We also know from Philippians chapter 4, verse 2 and 3, I plead with Yoda and Syntyche, two women, to be of the same mind. The Lord help these women since they have contended at my side. Boy, that's a fun noise. Contended. By the way, that means together they have worked with me. Paul is saying they have, they have been there with him, in the process with him. Teaching, leading. So, prophet, deacon, apostle, teacher, pastor, all assigned, almost all of them are assigned by Paul to women. But yet, we just read a passage where Paul says, I don't permit a woman to teach or have authority or to speak. How? How can the same guy write them both? I'll tell you why. Because Paul was writing a letter to his son who had been controlled by women his entire life. And he was saying to his son, who was timid and young and getting pushed around, he said, I don't let women run over me like that, just like I don't let the guys run over me. And if you understand the context, the context is very clear. Paul isn't belittling women. He's simply establishing to Timothy, you're going to have to get some intestines about you and deal with it. All right, quickly, and then I'm done. Her name was Lottie Friend. She was blue hair. I was uh, about 22, 23 years old. The pastor asked me to teach the adult, senior adult Sunday school class in the sanctuary at Wilmington Assembly of God. And Lottie had been a pastor. Lottie was a pastor. And she was now older, sitting there. And she had her group of cronies and her friends that sat around with her. And they were there. I said something Lottie didn't like. And the next thing you know, the, it starts flying. Come on, can we, can we deal with reality here? I said something Lottie, the leader, didn't like. And Lottie started bad-mouthing me to everybody in her circle of friends. Well, and I heard about it. I knew there was only one thing I could do. I called Lottie and said, I'm coming over. <laughs> you want to make a cup of coffee? So we sat down in her living room. I remember us sitting there to this very day, and I, I began to talk to her, and I began saying, you know what you're doing is not building God's kingdom. you got something to say, you need to say it to me, not to them. I want you to know that something happened that day, and Lottie became my friend. Lottie became a prayer warrior with me. And when I moved here to plant this church, there were some spiritual battles early on. I didn't have a prayer team around me. I called Lottie. And me and Lottie, I remember her praying with me one day and the power of God hitting me and hitting that situation. And it changed. You know what Paul would have said to me? Command Lottie to quit gossiping. That's what he would have written to me. And to deal with the issue. Now, Lottie is a great supporter and friend, minister. My wife is an ordained minister, been in ordained ministry for years and years. My mother-in-law sitting right back there, been a minister on staff at churches, minister, great preacher of the gospel. My, uh, oh, let me see. I've had deacons that were ladies. I've had staff pastors that were ladies. My mom and dad led ministries that literally led dozens if not hundreds of kids to faith in Christ. And my mom was the preacher and teacher, not my dad. 
I have all this history of women that I've invested in and spoken to and given opportunity in my entire life. Yet there are some people that call me a misogynistic jerk because I say some things like, you know, women, when you get in the car with them, they're going to talk. The guys can sit there and nod at each other. You hate women. I think I have a, a width of evidence that I don't. Is anybody listening? Then why do you take one thing out of context that Paul said when he has this width of evidence of how he treated ladies? And you take one thing out of context because it was written to his son that had a problem being pushed around by women and you make an entire excuse for why you don't want to believe God or why God's nothing but a misogynistic jerk. No, God's not the jerk. You're a jerk because you're misreading out of ignorance. The most ignorant person is the one that doesn't know that they don't know. And I'm just trying to help you not be ignorant. So, some of you take offense at these words in the Bible when you actually need to listen to them. Because God might be telling you, you need to be quiet. You need to get rid of the stress so your mouth quits running a thousand miles a minute and you need to be quiet. You need to listen to what God's saying. What would God say to you if you were driving down the road with him, you know, like me and Matt driving through Oklahoma? What would God say to you? What would you guys talk about? Would it be your marriage? Would it be your job? Would it be, what, what would you talk about? What would he be saying to you? Would he say, you know that sin? It's about time you deal with that. What would he say to you? Would he say, you know, I really love you. You're all right. You're doing good. I love you. I'm proud of you. You know, you're not winning every battle, but come on, you're trying. I love you. What would he say to you? Get to work. Come on. You've been sitting in that church for years and you haven't done a blasted thing to make it a better place. What would he say to you? Would he say, come on, you need to change how you deal with your wife or your kids or your husband? What would he say to you? Would he say to you, you know, you've been hanging around this Christianity thing for a long time and you've never believed. It's time. Is that what he'd say? If that's you, I want you to text believe to that number online. If you're in this place and you believe, then I want you to be a baptism to make that public declaration of your faith. No, raise your hand this morning. Get baptized. Come on, let's go all in. What would God say to you? If you're in the front of the truck with him for four hours or 16 hours. We're going to sing this song and I would like you to listen. I'd like you to ask God. Maybe hold your hands like this and say, okay, God, talk. You talk. I want to hear. Ask. Ask.